God in heaven, Lord, we pray that you would allow us to see what kind of love we need for others and that you would use this time to bring glory to your name and open our eyes to see how wonderful your love is and the kind of love we should have for others. We ask this to the praise of your name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Oh, if you'll see uh, in your notes there, calling this sermon from worry to joy because of love. And love, I think most of us have experienced, can lead to and it can relieve anxiety. So love can lead to a lot of anxiety. And I think I've seen this often happen is one of the toughest times for a parent is the first time they drop their kid off at camp because there is so much anxiety of not seeing their children for a couple days and not knowing how they're doing. Having run a couple of these camps, you know, you know the hardest person to convince to leave the cell phone at home is? Mom. Because mom wants to know how their kid is doing. They're like, I'm, just, I'm used to like being able to get text messages or like location tracking. You mean I can't know anything for like two whole days? Well, if there's a problem, we'll contact you. It's okay. But that is hard. I get that. I got my first taste of it actually. Uh, just the other week, we went to a homeschooling conference and our kids went to this little childcare program only for a couple hours. And it was like, okay, how are they doing over there? Like, is, is it okay? Like, it, you know, do I, do I need to go check on them? Uh, and love can create that kind of anxiety, right? You worry about the ones that you love. You worry about how they're doing. You worry if they're safe. You worry if they're living correctly. But love can also relieve so much anxiety and stress when you hear how they have been, right? And suddenly you're like, oh, it's okay. They're okay. Everything's okay. I, I think one of my greatest joys of running um, high school camps was being able to hear from the parents afterwards, tell me something that wasn't just, my kid had a great time, though that was a joy, but to be able to say, and here's what my kid learned. They were talking about this sermon or this activity or this event and they they made this friendship and i'm like yes and they were just so excited and loved love from afar should cause some anxiety because we're concerned that should lead us to prayer as it did for paul and it should grant relief because we care about this person being blessed and it's not just for those who've had children i think we can all relate to this paul obviously relates to this because this is he doesn't have any children as far as we know, but these are his spiritual children, right? And, and he has this great concern for them. And we can think of sisters, brothers, family members, parents, who we've had concerns about, right? And, and hopefully you've had the experience of some time of the joy of the relief that it is to know that they are doing well. And as, as I was looking at this passage in 1 Thessalonians 3, I, know, I was thinking, like, Paul spent a very short time with these people. And yet he loves them like family. I, 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 do I have that kind of love? And I think even as I was studying through this and as we look at this passage together, at least here for me at the beginning, I'm not looking at this and going like, oh, yeah, Chris has this covered. <laughs> like, I'm, I, I love like I'm, I'm going, I, I need to love like this. 
And so I think as I'm walking through this, this is kind of the question I'm working through is saying, how can we love like Paul loves? How can we have this kind of affection for people that we respond the way that Paul does for the good news? So if in First Thessalonians is perhaps one of the most personal books written in the New Testament by Paul. Great love. He uses these strong words. Chapter 1 and 2, he's talking about how thankful he is to God for them. Then in chapter, end of chapter 2, he's talking about how he served them like a mother with affection and love. And he served them like a father with a challenge to having them grow. He's talking like he's their parent when he was only there for a few months. He wrote in chapter 2, verse 1, You yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. This ministry was successful. It it accomplished a lot. This was driven by his love. And because of this great love, Paul, though now separated because of persecution, wants to see them again. And we talked about, when we looked at Thessalonians, is that this idea of how Satan doesn't want us together. He doesn't want us face-to-face and the benefits of face-to-face ministry. And we also talked about how Paul used the most advanced technology of the day, sending his brother Timothy on the Romans' road. And we talked about technology and the use of it with things like Zoom and emails and letters for the glory of God and the benefit of others. And today, we get the result of him sending Timothy. We get the message back and how he responded, which is an example for us. It it highlights a few things. So read along with me, and then I'm going to to put our attention on some spotlights to say how we can have this love. Sound good? Read along with me. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6 through 10. But now that Timothy has come from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you have always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. If you're following along in the notes, I'm going to try and point out three highlights or three spotlights to bring you greater joy in others. Three spotlights. These are things that draw our attention. What is Paul doing that draws him to the Lord? What gives him this great affection for people? Why does he do this? And the answer is, is he has these different like spotlights, these different ways of looking at them that allows him to actually like really, really care, even when he hasn't known them for that long. The first one is found in verse 6. And so these are going to be kind of disjointed. It's basically going to be verse 6 and then 7 through 9 and then verse 10. So, and verse 6 is actually going to be our longest one. So don't freak out. You're like, wow, how is the world going to get through this? Verse 6 we'll spend a lot more time on, of course. So in verse 6, we have rejoice over God's work in your shared lives. 
Paul rejoiced over God's work in the shared lives of the Thessalonians and him. And we can do the same. He wrote, Now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. Now, Timothy's report fits very well with the book of Acts. I just want to point that out at the beginning. It fits very well with the book of Acts. So if you want to turn to Acts 18, just to get the story with me, you can follow along because the Bible fits. It, It is the same, though written by different authors. It is the same truth. Acts 18 remember that in Acts 17, he leaves them behind and goes to Athens and does ministry there. And it's a hard ministry we talked about. Then in Acts 18, verse 1 through 5, Luke tells us, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Verse 5. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that Christ was Jesus. So, little map. This is why I do slides, because it's great to have a visual sometime. Just so you know, so Paul is here in... Um, in number 11 right there in Corinth, having just left number 10, which is Athens. And number eight is Thessalonica, which is all that area is called Macedonia. So what he's saying is that Timothy and Silas came from Macedonia, which is where Thessalonica is, and comes to Paul, who is in Corinth. And he gives him a report that just blesses them, right? So, you know, he's, he's freed from the ministry and the, or from the misery, the misery, the misery of being worried he failed in Thessalonica. You kind of read, like, he, he's anxious over this. He's concerned over this. And so we read that once they come to him, in verse 11 of Acts 18, he stays a year and six months in Corinth, teaching the word of God among them. You get that? Like that, that's really cool. Like he's so worried and then God brings a message and suddenly he doesn't have to be worried about that anymore. He can stay focused on the ministry ads and he stays there for 18 months building perhaps one of the most difficult churches in the Bible, the church of Corinth, right? Because he's like, I have to be here. Perhaps even that's what he's talking about, that Satan is keeping him because Satan is stirring up and causing problems in Corinth that he has to deal with. So how did Paul's message, or Timothy's message, I should say, encourage Paul? And if you're back in 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 6, he gets fourfold. There's four parts to this message. Uh, Pastor John MacArthur helps point these out. Fourfold report that encouraged Timothy. The first being that there was good news that their faith in God and Jesus Christ was genuine. He is praising God that their faith in Jesus Christ was 
genuine. They have real faith and love. And you can look at verse six. He's like the good news of your faith and love. This is a common phrase that Paul used to describe the entire of the Christian life. He often uses this as a summary of what a Christian was supposed to be. Ephesians 6.23 says, Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father. Or 1 Corinthians 13.13 says, Now faith, hope, and love abide. Right? And faith is essential. Faith is essential to this combination here. Because people want to say that love is important. And love is important. But love is the summary of the law. Right? Jesus said in Mark 12, 28, when a scribe says to him, Which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Mark 12, 28 through 31. So you get that loving God and loving people is a summary of the Ten Commandments. We can usually divide them that way. First four, the last six, right? And Paul says the same thing. What is the summary of the law? To love. But that's why you can't just say Christianity is all just about loving other people. If you just love other people, that's what Christianity is. It's just to do good things. But that's moralism. That's legalism. Even if it's legalism of the heart, you're like, oh, it's like it's a good kind of legalism. You're supposed to love people, right? But the law is supposed to lead us to Christ where our faith rests on his substitutionary atonement for our sins. Because none of us loves enough, do we? We we might want to. We're like, I want to love the people around me, but we don't. And so we need faith. We need trust for when our love is not good enough. Faith is essential because it says I need something outside of myself. It's the recognition, just like I need air to breathe each and every day and each and every second. And I need food to eat or water to drink from outside of me. I I need those things. So I need a foreign righteousness to come from outside of me. Make sense? So that righteousness produces something. Because it doesn't just, like, not just a good person. You actually are a good person who then loves. And so there was good news about their authentic love. It's, he says again, the good news of your faith and love. That word good news is used to describe a very special good news, the gospel. It's the same word. Only here and in Revelation 10, 17 is it used for anything other than the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul is so excited to hear that their faith is growing. He's saying, this is like the gospel to me. You get that? Like this is... This is huge. Oh, see, faith is the characteristic attitude of Christians towards God. And so love is our characteristic attitude towards other people. As Paul wrote in Galatians, For in Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, 
but only faith working through love. Galatians 5, 6. It's the word agape. It's a selfless love, a desire to serve other people. It's like, I've heard that you love other people well. And that love is specifically directed towards Paul, which is huge. It's because Timothy also tells them the good news that the Thessalonians thought kindly of Paul. They thought kindly of him. They were excited for him. It says in verse 6, And reported that you always remember us kindly, which, again, is a very, very big deal for him. And you might recall, we talked about this previously, how like, there was a lot of persecution that sent Paul running. Remember that like, he had to leave because there were Jews were tracking him down and following after him. And they basically told him, Paul, you better go for your own life's sake. And then throughout this book, he said things like, you know, the genuineness of my care. Right. He says in chapter two, verse five, we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is our witness. Nor do we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. And we talk that perhaps one reason he's saying this is that there have been other people who've come into the church. And they're saying, oh, Paul, that guy, he was just out for the money. He wasn't genuine. He lied to you. He said one thing, he did another. And he's like the Corinthians who kind of attacked his character to destroy his ministry. Perhaps these words are going around the church of Thessalonica and he's kind of concerned. Like, what if they believe these? My, I had to leave so quickly. What if we left on bad terms? Like, you can imagine your own situations and relationships you've had where you walk away and you're like, did they get the wrong picture from that? How did they interpret that? But Paul is blessed to hear they actually remember him kindly. Their, their time together was a good time. And so they, fourthly, the Thessalonians' affection was so strong, they were longing to see Paul. End of verse 6 says, You long to see us as we long to see you. Just as Paul wanted to be back in person with them, they wanted to see him again. There were his spiritual children. And just as any parent adults that their adult children want to spend time with them when they don't have to, it was delight to him. Now, I hope you see, like, Paul is defining his joy with his spiritual children based on their love that was defined by God. It's a shared love and it's a shared experience rooted in, rooted in godliness and a godly situation and their mutual love for God, which will come to be important here when we get to verse 10. And I think this is really important because true love requires grounding in truth, not just feelings. We, we can see this in the very confusing mantra that exists right now. Love is love, Right? Just love is love. Just love because love is love. And interestingly, I was reading that in Australia, which is very, very liberal, um, that there's been a number of pushes because 
the same-sex activists are really upset that the polyamorous, the one who want multiple husbands and wives in a relationship, are trying to jump on their equality bandwagon. One of the leaders in the Australian governor, Alex Greenwich, the national convener of the Australian marriage equality. So his job is to make gay marriage a thing, right? And so he told the Australian news that, it's like, well, why does it have to be two people? And his response is, well, it's always been two people who rely upon each other in a relationship to the exclusion of others. And you could just imagine the hands in the audience going like, wait a second, it's always been defied by a male and female together as well. So why are you making that distinction? And they're trying to just say like, well, it, it, like, we got to advance in the certain way we can and ignore the other things we don't want to have happen, right? But we can go like, no, it's, it's based in reality itself. The creation of a child requires two zygotes, male and a female, to come together and to create a new life. And that has always been protected in marriage because we care about children. And so we want to lift up marriage as being an institution to define love, not just love for two people, but love for the offspring that can result from those two people. Nature itself defines love within marriage. Love requires some kind of faith. It requires trust in something like that, to define what should love be. What kind of loving act should I do? You get that? Like that's... Paul's love is defined by something outside of himself to say what love should be. All love has to be decided that way. And so I I think this has to be our first thought when we try and apply this. We have to believe that for love to be the strongest between us and anyone else, then we must love God most, first and foremost. Paul shared with these people, and he knew the message of John 13 very well. When Jesus said to his disciples, John 13, 34, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. John 13, 34 through 35. So do people know that we are Christ's disciples by our love? I think perhaps like it's hard sometimes because people who are Christians are different from us still. Sometimes we have different languages. Sometimes we have different interests. We come from different social class. We, we have different skin colors. Like there are differences between us and those differences sometimes make it hard to love. But if we were to try and love a different type of music than you were familiar with, you're like, man, I really want to understand classical music. Here's what my, my wife and I, Liz and I, we have very different preferences. She was a, a music geek growing up in high school. I liked climbing walls. Like she did plays. I went skiing. Like we had very different interests. And yet... When we got married, because we had loved the same Christ, I wanted to know about her interests. 
So how do I do that? I'm like, okay, well, tell me about what kind of music you like. Listen, I still don't understand her desire to listen to Latin music. I don't get, not, not Latin as in music that from, from the Latin culture, but Latin music as in it's actually in Latin. It's in the language, language. I'm like, I don't understand a word they're saying, but okay. But I'm like, okay, tell me why you love this. Help me understand. Okay, listen to it over and over again so that I might grow an appreciation of it. Uh, because we went to this one um, concert that the master's, college put on and I'm just like rolling my eyes and she's like crying. I'm like, okay, I got to understand this. Okay. If you want to understand that you say, okay, Hey, tell me about it. Explain. I'm going to spend time with it. And in the same way to grow for love of the church, the people of the church, what we need to do, we need to think about these people. We need to pray for the people. At the very least, least like try and know people's names Spend time with people, not just those people themselves, but people who love those people. We got to love people and say, like, look for the great things so we might grow in affection for one another. And then look at how we relate because of Christ together. To grow in love, we must share or we must focus on what we share the most, who is Jesus Christ. And how someone else is reflecting Jesus Christ. Paul does this in verses 7 through 10. When he doesn't just focus on his personal relationship with them. But on God's work in their lives. So secondly, verses 7 through 10. He rejoices over blessings. Because God is still doing good in their life. He rejoices over the blessings. Because God is still doing good, and that encourages him. Verse 7 through 10. For this reason, brothers, in our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake, before our God. So in chapter 1, Paul was thanking God for them repeatedly. We, we talked about this, how Paul never really thanks a person directly. He thanks God for that person, because God is the ultimate source. This is what Pastor Yuri has been preaching on Sunday mornings, right? God is the source behind all the good that is in us. And here again, he returns to the idea, like, you're standing firm in your faith. You're not being tossed by the pressures and the concerns and the persecutions of the world. You're not being seduced by the lure of Satan, the good tasty morsel he puts on the fish hook to get you. And he was concerned. He was really concerned, which added to those important words he says in verse 7, our distress and affliction. Paul is still suffering when he's in Athens, and then Corinth. It was a really tough place. He is suffering for the mission of Christ. It was never just a job for Paul. It was his calling. And he truly felt the weight of these churches and his desire to care for them. Paul wrote in, to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight and 29. Apart from all these other things, there is the daily pressure on me on the, 
of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? You got to remember when churches failed, when they were unfaithful and they succumbed to sin and false teaching, Paul was devastated. Like he knew the sovereignty of God. He believed it. He preached it. And yet it still weighed on him heavily. In 2 Corinthians 7, we read that Paul heard about the Corinthian church and all the problems that were there. And he became depressed. So much so that there was an open door for preaching the gospel. And he had a hard time doing it. He was so discouraged. He felt like, what's the point? You ever feel that way? The Apostle Paul did, right? And here, this message from the Thessalonican church allowed him to live once again. It was a high tide that lifted his spirits up. It encouraged him. So he said, verse 8, For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. He heard what God was doing in their lives. In the midst of their difficulties, did they give up? No. And so we stand if you stand. You remember in Philippians, Paul said to live as Christ and to die as gain, right? And so th- this is the interesting thing because you're like, well, but like, is he being dependent as on other people? Is this kind of like that awkward thing that lovers say between each other, especially like, you know, teenage boyfriend and girlfriends are like, oh man, I would just die without you. And you're like, that's melodramatic, a little bit too much. Like, is Paul being melodramatic here? And I would argue no, because it's not necessarily just how they're doing, it's how they're doing in the Lord. If to live is Christ, then to see Christ's work being accomplished is life. You get that? Like, there is joy. Everything else in your life could be a struggle. Your health could be bad. There could be pressure, suffering, persecution upon you. Your finances could dip. But you hear God is doing good work in someone's life. And you're like, Jesus is being praised. Amen. John Calvin, the great theologian, pastor, wrote, this is what a pastor should do. He said they should reckon themselves happy when it goes well with the church. Although they should be in other respects encompassed with many miseries. And so on the other hand, they pine away with grief and sorrow if they see the building which they have constructed in a state of decay. Although matters otherwise should be joyful and prosperous. If life is good and sweet, if pastors have lots of money and success, but the church is not doing well, they're broken up and are disheartened. If life is hard, but the church is serving God, we rejoice. And so in verse 9, that delight turns into thanksgiving. What thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God. Notice that phrase. He says in verse 8, or verse 7, I'm sorry, all our distress and affliction has now turned to all the joy that we have. There's a parallel there. 
This news has changed their situation. And Paul doesn't step back in self-satisfaction. Pat him on the back and say, yeah, I was your spiritual father and mother. I did a pretty good job raising you, didn't I? Like that could be the temptation. And believe you me, pastors do this. Get up in front of large audiences and say, look at what I have built. Look at how much I've accomplished and how many people are, you know, starting new churches because of me. Paul doesn't do that. Paul says, how can we return? For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? He is satisfied in what God has done. So Paul and his companions thank God. And this prayer results in joy. They have great joy in this news. Dr. James Roscup writes, Joy in the Christian's good cheer that springs from faith's confidence that resources in Christ are sufficient. Let me say that again. Joy is the Christian's good cheer that springs from the confidence that resources in Christ are sufficient. Because think about it this way. I would argue that when our mouths are empty of praise for others, it's probably because our hearts are full of self-love. Like that, that's the problem. And this is illustrated in a way is, can you imagine hearing praise reports? We, we share praise reports in here, or they go out in the email, or you're talking to someone, and it's easy, it's easy to be like, I, I've been praying for someone faithfully to be healed from cancer, right? And you get the praise report that they are. And you're like, wait a second. I've also been praying for my issue with my lungs or my finances or whatever other issue, my relationships with my parents, my friends, my sister, whoever. Like, you, you've been praying for this thing. You're like, yay, God's answer. But why hasn't he answered my prayer request? My life isn't better yet. And... and there could be a selfishness that clings to that, right? Where we, 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 we get discouraged that God is answering their request and not ours. Or we could say, the same God that I've been praying to for so long for my friend has answered their prayer requests. And you know what? I know he's going to answer mine. Like, if we think about them and we delight for them, then our issue doesn't become first and foremost in our mind. We have joy because we know our faith is in the fact that God is all-sufficient. He will take care of things. Paul is able to have joy in much difficulty and trials because he's seen God take his work and make it run. And though he is in the difficult church of Corinth, he knows God. Can make them stand. We can be built up by the good news in other people's lives. And we're all suffering, right? We're suffering in different ways. We're either, we're either in a trial or we're going into a trial, as has often been said. And if we take our eyes off ourselves and look at others, there's a great joy and relief that can come about. Notice in the midst of Paul's trials, he prays for them. And you know what God's answer is for a while? 
wait. This is important because, you, you, you know, we, we say often, and I think correctly, God's answer to prayers is always yes, no, or wait. And sometimes that waiting one is the hardest because you don't actually know. And, and you can imagine, we talk about this, that's adding anxiety to Paul's life. And our response should be the same as Paul's. Submissive trust and patience. It's that waiting that actually builds the capacity for joy. That anticipation, the fact that we keep praying, allows us to have this joy. So if I could encourage you, keep praying for other people. When your life is hard, when God seems to say no to some of your prayer requests, pray for others. Keep praying. And when you hear a result back, let that encourage your soul. Take joy because your love for them will actually bring you greater joy. We see that like it's so against our natural desire. We think we focus more on myself. Take care of number one. Then things will be good. But God's way is love others and our joy will increase. Now, Paul is joyful over their relationship. And he's joyful over God's work in their lives, which is hard. Because that joy doesn't mean everything is fine and dandy in Thessalonica. There's a third part I think is important when it comes to our love for other people. We need to be able to third rejoice over the work that still needs to be done. Verse 10. Rejoice over the work that still needs to be done. He says, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Paul is rejoicing over the work that still needs to be done. And we need to be able to love people well. We need to rejoice over what's lacking in their lives. What's a problem in their lives. You get that? Verse 10 says Paul is praying over and over again. Not necessarily... You know, chronologically, he's just saying repeatedly, morning and evening, throughout the day, all the time, I am praying that I can be with you. And, and as a good Christian pastor, and I would say as a good Christian brother, not just pastors, every Christian, he doesn't want to just be with them to hang out, shoot the breeze, talk the small stuff. He wants to supply what is lacking in their faith. The word supply there means to render complete some defect to fill in the hole to meet a need and and these two letters first and second thessalonians show that this was a really good church they had a lot of things going for them but they had some big holes specifically their eschatology their end times, what they thought would happen in the end. And they had all kinds of wrong ideas and problems based on the fact that they thought Jesus had already come back. And so Paul wants to address this and the problems in their lives. In fact, we'll see in chapter 4, verse, um, oh, well, four, four, 4, verse 3, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Like there's something wrong in the church. There were problems in their lives. Now these problems are nothing like the Galatians, right? 
In Galatians chapter 1, verse 6, he said, I am astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ, and you're turning to a different gospel. Thessalonians didn't do that. Or Corinth, right? 1 Corinthians 11, verse 19 says, There must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine may be recognized. There are factions in the church because there are liars in the church. That's not true of Thessalonians. This church is doing well, and yet they still had to grow. See, we need to love others well by recognizing their lack, their sin, their immaturity as an opportunity and a blessing. There's this famous story about Thomas Watson, who was the CEO of IBM during the 60s. And there's some doubt over whether it's actually true or not, but it does seem to reflect what IBM was trying to do at the time. There was a vice president in the company who had a project to do, and he did it really, really, really bad. He lost somewhere around $10 million in 1960s money. And he was called in to Watson's office. And the vice president expected, as probably all of us would, his pink slip. He was going to be fired. And so he actually went through the effort of printing up his resignation to give to the CEO on that time. And he walks into the room and he hands Watson the letter and says, here's my resignation, sir. I have thoroughly messed up. Um, I will collect my things. Watson simply shook his head. He said, fire you? You are certainly not leaving after we have just given you a $10 million education. You are going to grow from this. That is such a good point. Like, you love best when you see the work that needs to be done as an opportunity for greater knowledge of God and greater good to flow from that person. Relationships are messy, aren't they? Friends are not good enough. People in the church, those saints, are not holy enough. We hurt each other. And it's hard loving people who let us down, who are not as they should be in our lives. And no matter how godly a person is, if you get close enough, you'll see what's lacking in them. You'll see their sin. You'll see their failures. And and I say often, that there is a direct correlation between how you and I are close to each other and how much we have to ask forgiveness of one another. So we need to see lackings as an opportunity to show someone the object of their faith. We need to see it as an opportunity to supply what's lacking, to point them, not just to like, let me me correct you in your doctrine, but to point them to Christ. In theological terms, this is called progressive sanctification, growth in Christ. Or for those who are not believers, those you might have to love as well, it's justification. They need to be saved. They need to see Jesus because their faith is in the wrong place. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23 says, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit and your soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Like, that's so key. He said, even your body is supposed to be sanctified. It becomes an issue throughout this church. Like, there, there's some things going wrong in the sexual activities of the Thessalonican church that Paul needs to address. Everything needs to come under that growing nurture of the gospel. And you go, why does God allow this? Why does God allow there to be lackings in people's lives, in my lives? Jerry Bridges, in his great work on gospel-centered sanctification, gives a couple points. He says, God allows us to grow slowly, to let us see the sinfulness that still exists in the heart of people. We got to understand, like, this world is not the way it should be yet. There is sin in my heart, and there is sin in your heart. And it's very easy at times, even to uplift someone we greatly love as an idol. And then God lets us see, nope, there's still sin. They're not God. Only Jesus is. He says, secondly, this need for progressive sanctification causes us to realize how weak we are in ourselves and how dependent upon God we must be. We need to remember that we need God and we need to remind other people, you need God. And third, the repeated thing of sin in our lives curbs a tendency towards spiritual pride and causes us to grow in humility. Like within the church, as we see the sins of others, it should remind us of our own sins. As we see what's lacking in their faith, it should remind us there are things lacking in my faith too. May we grow humbly. Now, these things I think are true. We need to rejoice over God's work in our shared lives, in the experiences we've had together following Christ. We need to rejoice over the blessings that God is doing in other people's lives because it will encourage us. And we need to rejoice over the work that still needs to be done. And Paul's example for all of us is that we must grow in love. Because a lack of love makes the truth look ugly. And, and I think those of us who really love the truth of God's word, we're like, what do you mean? This is the Bible we're talking about. This is the gospel, the good news that Jesus died for sinners like you, that you don't have to be good enough. This is beautiful. And it is. But you know what else is beautiful? The Grand Canyon. Wait, wait. Let me try and get this picture. It's not giving it to me. There we go. I'm going to put this up here. The beautiful Grand Canyon. You go and see that. And you're in awe, right? You're like, this is amazing. No picture can catch it, right? Like, you go in person. And you're like, this doesn't, this, this, the pictures don't even catch a glimmer of this. But you know what will make the Grand Canyon look pretty ugly pretty fast? If someone shoves you off the edge. And as you're going down, I can guarantee you that the beauty of the Grand Canyon will not look so beautiful. No matter how godly, no matter how true a doctrine is, if it is not accompanied with love, we will make it look ugly. Jesus said in first, or John said, 
in 1 John 4.20, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. A failure to love people is a failure to love God. I think Paul shows us this example. By taking our eyes off ourselves, we can see greater what God is doing. So he gets the praise and we grow in love. So I think that's my challenge for us is to look at Paul's example and say, how can I grow in this kind of love to the praise of his glorious name? Let me pray. God, allow us to love others well the way you do. We ask that you might grow our appreciation for your work in their lives. To the praise of your name, Jesus Christ. Amen.